you guys ever had anyone come to your door selling anything? Something you don't want to buy, and yet you find yourself locked in a conversation trying not to be rude? Does that happen to anybody? Yeah, raise your hand. Yeah. For some reason, I think we think we're good Christians if we just aren't rude to the solicitors, right? My favorite are the folks that sell that cleaning solution in the unmarked spray bottle. Any of you guys know that one? Yeah, the people that come and like they're, they're trying to get you to you know, clean your windows, clean your carpets, all that stuff. Many of you know what I'm talking about. Well, the young naive kid uh, that had that spray bottle came to our door trying to sell some off-market cleaning solution. And I'm guessing that it would have helped them move up whatever pyramid scheme they were part of. Um, but years ago now, um, this is what happened. They came to the door, and my wife and I were living in Tigard at the time. And he showed up with his spray bottle. And I was so naive myself, I was in my early 20s, at that time that I opened up the door and stood there without protest. Hey, how's it going? This poor guy had all the tricks. He started writing on my door and then spraying it and wiping it off. Amazingly enough, the random fluid he had in his unmarked bottle actually did clean off the mark. I don't know if it was acid or what, but it cleaned the mark, right? He showed me over and over that it actually could clean. And unfortunately, the entire time, I was merely internally counting the seconds until he would catch the hint that I did not want to buy his stuff, but that usually doesn't come across. When I finally started to close the door, this young man stepped into my door, put his foot in the door, and started yelling at me, telling me that I was like all the other people, letting him waste his time, all the while knowing that I wouldn't let him in my house to buy his product. And you know what? He had a point. He actually made a good point. Now, since then, I pretty much tell them right off, I'm not interested, thank you very much, because of conviction from that situation. And luckily, in that situation, our loyal German shepherd uh, that we had at the time came running to the front door and let him know that it was time for him to leave, and so he walked away. But I do remember being a bit convicted. You see, the reason this young man had a bit of righteous anger towards me is that I was engaging with him in what I call apathetic approval. In order to not offend him, I let him think I was interested in what he was giving me, all the while knowing that when it came right down to it, I wasn't interested. I was apathetically approving only in so much as it cost me nothing, and he didn't get past my front door. I had apathetic approval. Now this morning, we're going to be looking at a third response to Jesus' authority that is similar to my reaction to that salesman. But this is where the metaphor begins to break down, doesn't it? As Paul said in the passage from 2 Corinthians we looked at last week, we are not peddlers of the word of God. I think often being a pastor, I find myself wanting to get into that mode. Let me, let me sell you Jesus, right? And we try to sell Jesus to people, but that's not the truth of the gospel. It's not something to sell. That's why this metaphor breaks down. Unfortunately, many of us treat Christianity as a consumer product, either to sell or to consume. There are millions made every year, potentially even billions, on Christian consumer products. But the gospel is not a consumer product. And nonetheless, the first response to Jesus' authority, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, was rejection and faithful, uh, faithlessness. Rejection and faithlessness in the town of Nazareth. The people of Jesus' own hometown rejected him as Messiah, and he walked away. The second response we looked at last week was submission to his rule and commission to his mission, stepping in the mission, into the mission to take the gospel of the kingdom of God to the rest of Israel. And we looked at how that practically applies to us today. I'm hoping that many of you took a number of those application points from last week and engaged in those to start to grow your understanding of that section. 
But here this morning in Mark chapter 6, we come to the third response of Jesus' authority. The third response to Jesus' authority, apathetic approval. And as we look at this, we will see a number of parallels to many in our contemporary society and even in our contemporary church. And I pray that this will cause us to question our own affections and motivations so that we might look at Herod and understand where he's at and see if we are in line with him or if we're in line with John the Baptist, so that we might be assured that we're submitted and committed to Christ and his mission. But before we delve back into the text this morning, it's going to take a little bit of background to understand it. So let's first look at the background to the death of John the Baptizer. Now, why do I call him John the Baptizer? Well, because he wasn't part of a denomination called Baptist, right? He was a baptizer, John the Baptizer. And so let's take a look here at the background a little bit. Hopefully, as we've been moving through Mark, you're getting used to the repetition of literary techniques, of certain themes. They're very repetitious in Mark for a reason, and we need to clue in on those. The literary technique we see here is, again, this idea of sandwiching. Verses 7 through 13 are describing the 12, right? Look there. It says Jesus sends out the 12 apostles. That's the title in most of your Bibles. And so 7 through 13 is about the apostles. And then verse 30 that Brian read at the very end of his reading, verse 30 is about those apostles again, what happens when they return to Jesus and tell him all that they had done and taught. In between these statements is what seems to be a completely unrelated story. It's as if we're stuck in the middle of a flashback of a character in a soap opera, right? Everything starts to go grainy on the screen, and we move back, and we start to see a different uh, story, a different narrative. Remember that when the metaphorical record screeches to a halt when you're reading the Bible, you need to stop and pay attention to it. And this is definitely out of sorts. It's not a linear thought. And so we must stop and take notice because it's usually included for a reason. And here I believe it's included to give us one more type of response. But interestingly, it's sandwiched within the response of the apostles. I find that very interesting, and we'll talk about that more. Secondly, we not only see the repetitive literary technique of sandwiching, we also see the theme of, who do you say that Jesus is? The top two themes, as you've seen and will see in Mark, is who do you say, the listener, Individually, who do you say that Jesus is? You'll also see the theme ongoing of insider versus outsider to the kingdom of God. We've already talked about that a bit. And both of these will be repeated, but here this question of who do you say that Jesus is, is there. In verse 14, it speaks of who some say that Jesus is. You can look there at it. The idea is primary throughout the gospel account because it's a question for you to answer. The first century audience would not be as removed as we are, and so it would be even more pressing for them. They were only a few decades removed from Jesus, and so the idea was right in front of their face. Who is this Jesus character? Is he simply a prophet? Is he simply a moral guy that we have to follow? Is he actually the Messiah? So let's take a look there at Mark 14 through 16. King Herod heard of it. What did he hear of? Verse 13, and they, the disciples, cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And so King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Verse 15, but others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John 
whom I beheaded has been raised. And you can almost hear the crack in his voice as he's fearful. This question is being proposed as a result of the work, not only of Jesus, but of his apostles acting in Jesus' authority. They went out. They were commissioned for the work. As we discussed last week, the kingdom work of healing and exorcism was used to provide evidence of the power and authority of God amidst Jesus and amidst his sent ones. So King Herod hears of the works of the apostle, and his response is, this has to be John the Baptist. It seems just like him, the one that I beheaded. And there's almost an underlying fear here as if to say, but wait a minute, didn't I kill that guy? It's like the bad guy in the movie. I keep trying to kill him, why won't you die, right? That's what's going on. And at this point, the story pauses and gives us this backstory. So let's follow the author's lead and reflect on who this character is, Herod Antipas. To say that his family tree is more like a group of twisted weeds is an understatement. To know his life and the fullness of the context of this story, we need to start back a few generations from Herod Antipas. Israel was part of a giant tract of land that was fought over constantly. Between Alexander the Great a few hundred years before and the point in which we now stand in the story, there were a number of takeovers and a number of authority changes. I'm not going to confuse you with the details, but just know that the land was traded back and forth, different rulers, different people involved. Eventually, though, the land ends up in the hands of a man who is ethnically Edomite. That's the area that we now know as Jordan, specifically the area of Petra. But he ends up converting to Judaism. This man was known as Antipater, or Antipater. His, uh, he was named king over much of the area surrounding Israel, and soon after, he began to turn his allegiance from himself over to the Roman Empire. He knew that they were a growing power. Now, he was rewarded with being named procurator or governor of all Judea, and through marriage, he strengthened his alliances and was named king of all Judea. Okay? This is Herod Antipas's great-great-grandfather. By the time of Jesus' birth, this man's grandson, uh, great-great-grandson, was in power, and he was, um, sorry, I'm, I'm even getting confused here. He was Herod the Great, okay? So take a look at the guy at the top. Herod the Great is the grandson of Antipater, the father of Herod Antipas, okay? I needed to do a diagram because I was even confused as I studied it. So this was the Herod known for ordering the murder of children in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth. So everybody say Herod the Great. That's the guy at the top. He wasn't that great, though, because he was a murderer, all right? Now, while it was his grandfather that was the first to convert to Judaism, Herod the Great still was very desirous of being a religious Jew. He even mixed much of his lifestyle of being a Hellenistic uh, bent guy with Judaism. And outwardly, he was staunchly religious Jew. If you looked at him from the outside, you'd say, man, this guy loves Judaism. He even built into most of his palaces uh, what are called mikvahs or baptismal founts, where he could go and be cleansed in holiness, right? And he replaced the priests of the day with priests that were more pure-blooded, more pure-blooded Jews that had returned from the Babylonian exile. From the outside, everybody's like, this guy is really Jewish. Uh, now, inwardly, though, he was directly contrary to God's heart, even in that story, obviously, of murdering children in Bethlehem, in a bid to retain power against the Messiah of Israel. But from there, the story becomes increasingly complex. These are just five of the potential ten women that he was married to and had children with. And we know that he married a number of different women by archaeological finds and writings, 
But these children started to intermarry with one another in incestuous relationships, and the territory of Judea was broken up between his sons. So this map is kind of weird. This is the the area of Israel, but those two green areas to the west of Galilee and to the east of the Dead Sea, those are the areas that he handed to his son, Herod Antipas. And so this is where he was largely reigning. So the immediate background to the Herod of our story is that he is Herod the Great's son, okay? That's the guy there, circled, Herod Antipas, that we're reading about. It's really confusing when they keep naming them the same name, right? Well, the reality is, is those are usually titles. They're not actually their proper name. But Herod Antipas here, he was the son of Herod the Great underneath one of his, um, one of his wives there. Now, there was another son, the half-brother of Herod Antipas, look over there to the right, and his name was Philip. And Philip married a young woman named Herodias. Now, as you can see, this Herodias was actually Philip and Herod Antipas's half-niece by way of their half-brother, Aristobulus. Are you confused yet? Now, Herodias and Philip, there's Aristobulus, Herodias and Philip had a daughter named Salome. Now, Herod Antipas fancied Herodias, and probably because of lust, but also because of political intrigue, he eventually convinced her to divorce her husband and leave Philip and marry himself. So these are the three people involved in this story. Herod Antipas, who married his half-niece Herodias, after committing incestuous adultery with her against his half-brother Philip, and he's having a stag party where the high-ranking men of his kingdom are getting drunk and debauchery, and in the midst of that, he decides it's a great idea that he's going to have Salome, his half-niece and stepdaughter, dance for him in front of the drunk men. (laughs) Anybody else just throw up in their mouth, right? Now, dance was typical of these kinds of parties, and we can guess what it was like because we're given a similar description in the story of Queen Esther about King Ahasuerus and his wife Vashti. Okay, this is from Esther chapter 1. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded all these people that have crazy names that I'm not going to pronounce, and the seven eunuchs, these were the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. For she was lovely to look at, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. The undercurrent of this story was that Vashti, rightly so, had too much self-respect to come and stand before these drunken jerks, and so she refused. In other words, the dance that Herod was asking of his young stepdaughter and half-niece was not a waltz, if you get my drift. The author then adds in this obvious statement, To add to the perversion with this clarifying comment, take a look at Mark 6, 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. That's not even half the story. Because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And we would all say, "Uh huh? But let's take a look at what he's referring to there. The lawful piece to which John was referring was the Levitical law forbidding marrying and having intercourse with your brother's wife. 
Let's take a look at it. Leviticus 18, 16. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter. And you shall not take her son's daughters or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. Hey, batting 100 on this one. Literally every piece of this he is breaking. Leviticus 20, 21. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. So it seems that Herod had given audience to John on one, more than one occasion, and John had shared with him the hard truth, hey, brother, if you claim to be Jewish, like your father before you and your grandfather before, great-grandfather before that, then you should obey God's command to cease the debauchery in which you found yourself engaged. What did he get for it? He got his head cut off. Herod dismissed the idea. But Herodias was bitter and contemptuous against John. So take a look there at verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Well, it's from this point on in the story that we see the second point, the main point of today, Herod Antipas is a picture of the response of apathetic approval. You can write that down. Herod Antipas is a picture of the response of apathetic approval. Our brains like to make things efficient, and so we very much, you've seen this in your kids, those of you that have parents, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? As they get older and you watch different kinds of movies where it's not as clean cut, because in reality it's not as clean cut, it's hard to explain to your children who's good and who's bad. But our brains, as we read the Bible, we want to say good, bad. And so Herod Antipas, which column does he go in? That was way too slow. <laughs> bad. Okay, everybody go ahead and say it again. Bad, right? But the reality is, is that Herod Antipas is not unlike many of us and many in contemporary Christianity. And I believe this is one of the reasons that this is sandwiched in between the response of the disciples in the midst of it. Some of the disciples, or the disciples, they go out and they preach and they get commissioned. But then within this is this idea of approval somewhat, but also an apathetic approval. Let's take a look here. This story is partially also inserted into Mark to serve as foreshadowing on the eventual death of Jesus Christ. Notice that it's a governor of Rome, much like Pontius Pilate was for Jesus, that carries out the final death sentence. Notice that the governor was not able to find any reason for death, but it was other people who called for it that caused him to give in. Notice that John was compared to Elijah, most exactly like Jesus will be compared to Elijah in Mark chapter 8, 27 through 28. When we get there, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And so John the Baptist is not only a forerunner to Jesus, he's foreshadowing and forerunning in this idea of death. And notice lastly that his disciples take John the Baptist's body there in verse 29, and they lay it in a tomb at the conclusion of the story. All of these are intricately constructed by the author to act in foreshadowing of Jesus' eventual death. It is therefore, therefore quite appropriate for us to look at the story as a kind of type for a response to Jesus himself. As Herod responded to John, many would respond to Jesus in a similar fashion. Do you remember how many crowds Jesus drew from previous readings of the gospel? 
And how many times those same people approved and approved until he called them and challenged them. He called them to die to themselves. What happened then? They disappeared. Apathetic approval was there. So what was Herod's response here? What was this similar idea with Herod? Well, first, what we see is that he was generally approving of John the baptizer and his message. He actually enjoyed him. And at the same time, he was perplexed by the message and did not take what John said to the point of applying it in repentance and obedience. Notice the statement beginning in verse 20. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him, what's the word there? Gladly. He was approving and even appreciative and respectful to the point that he even protected John the baptizer up until it comes to his wife. And this seems to give the idea that they met more than once, that they actually had dialogue. He seems approving of the message to the point where he hears it audibly, but that did not translate into action. He even is somewhat perplexed, but seemingly does nothing to undo that confusion. That's the approval piece. But then we also see the apathy. You see, the definition of apathy is indifference. It's the opposite of love. Many think hatred is the opposite of love, but just ask any marriage counselor who's worth its salt, and they will tell you that a couple that is still arguing and yelling at each other has hope because passion is still there. They still love each other enough to fight. But a couple who's indifferent to each other, who's actually lost love for one another, that's a, that's a dying marriage. Indifference, apathy, is the opposite of love. Apathy is an indifference to the point where nothing affects you. And the words of John the baptizer were heard, but Herod was not listening and not applying. How do we know this? Well, let's look at the rest of the story. And it tells us pretty clearly that he probably wasn't hearing John the baptizer's message. Verse 21. An opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, again, not a waltz, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, notice that it says girl. Want to get a little deeper in the wanting to vomit in your own mouth? She was most likely a teenager. Okay? And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went and asked her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want, to, uh, want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Mm, stand-up guy, man of character, right? Doesn't want to break his word. We'll talk about that in a second. And so, uh, I lost my part here. Here we go, verse 27. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. We saw the approval already, but here we see the apathy in action. Herod claimed to be some form of religious Jew, even if it was simply as fallout from his father's dead faith. What was it that Herod actually cared about, though? What was it actually that motivated his action 
and his life. This is why Jesus talks about fruit showing what's actually at the core of your heart. We can talk all day about being Christians, but if our actions do not show that inward change, that inward movement under the reign of Christ, then we have nothing. And the first thing that we see with Herod is we see idolatry. The idolatry and lust of the flesh drove him to an illegal and immoral marriage. Lust and debauchery and drunkenness is what is driving his decisions in this story. Quickly, let's look at what being driven by idolatry and lust brings. If you want to write these down, you can. First, it removes the care of the other. It removes the care of the other. When you're driven by idolatry and lust of life, of success, of money, of, of sex, right, uh, it denigrates or removes care for the other and elevates the care of self. It leads to nothing but selfishness. Idolatry is selfishness because we're building gods in our own image. Herod feigned care for the opinion of others, but the only neck he actually is worried about protecting is his own. And so it removes the care of the other. Secondly, idolatry causes you to make bets with your words and actions that you can't in reality keep. Oftentimes I find with people as I'm sitting in counseling sessions, we bring up vows that they've made themselves and others that are just not possible. God, if only you love me, I will be perfect for you. Can you keep that vow? No, you cannot. We make these vows to other people and to God and to ourselves. But the funny part about this is, is that um, Herod Antipas, because he was a puppet ruler of Rome, he didn't actually have the authority to give up any of his kingdom. And yet he bet it anyway. You and I bet our lives all the time on stupidity, on idolatry. Is your life yours to give? Is your life yours to give? Church, is your life yours to give? It was bought at a price. It was purchased with the blood of Jesus. And the life you were given was actually in the first place, even if you weren't converted, it was given to you by God. Your life is not your own. And yet we, like Herod, we bet our lives all the time when we can't actually have the authority to pay that bet out. Lust and idolatry motivate us to forget reality and act in manic destruction that can never be repaired. We think it can because we've bought this lie that Jesus will suddenly undo all of the mistakes of your past. No, Jesus will forgive them and he will enter you in and usher you into an eternity. But choices on this earth have consequences. And the reality is, is we can't get past that. But we think that we can because we've put ourselves in the place of God. Third, idolatry makes us sorry. It not only removes the care of the other, and causes us to make bets with our lives that we can't actually pay off. But idolatry makes us sorry. It says that he, Herod, was exceedingly sorry. Regret is the only possible outcome of idolatry in action. This man had addiction issues. Drinking, lust of the flesh, idolatry of debauchery and self-interest. And it led to him becoming extremely sorry. Well, not only do we see idolatry, but the second thing we see that shows his apathy towards the truth of God's word that John was trying to proclaim to him is that he was motivated by the opinion of others above God. He was motivated by the opinion of others above God. Look at how many opinions he cared about in this story. He cared about all the nobles and military commanders, for they were in high positions. He cared about um, uh, them because they fed his ego. 
They helped him think good of himself. He cared about Salome and her dancing and quote-unquote pleasing him. Why? Because she fed his ego about himself. He cared about Herodias and her opinion of him. Why? Because she fed his ego about himself. Do you notice a pattern? He cared about even John's opinion at first. He feared John. Why? Well, because being around John meant he was closer to God, right? That's usually how people operate with religious figures. He liked this because John fed his ego about himself. Did he care about the one who was actually giving him the truth? In reality, we find with John, no, he didn't, because it was convicting. And for this ego-hungry human, that wouldn't, that wouldn't serve his purposes. And this shows that as long as it was convenient, as long as what John told him was something he could toss away, as long as it cost him nothing, Herod was willing to give room for the truth of God from a distance. But the moment it cost him something, the moment it cost him his ego, the moment it cost him his comfort, he decided it was time to no longer listen to John. It was time to kill John. And what was John's message? John the baptizer, we find in the other Gospels, spoke of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Because one was coming, who was the Messiah, who would baptize them, not with water, but with the Spirit of the Holy God. And this was too much for Herod to take, because it would mean his life would have to drastically change. Similarly, the crowds and masses loved Jesus as long as he served them and their agenda. As long as Jesus serves me and my agenda, I will love him. But when he requires something, asks me to lay my life down, I'm not so sure that I want to hear that truth. How powerfully this reflects much of contemporary Christianity. How powerfully this can reflect my own heart and your own heart if we are not disciplined to bring them under obedience to Jesus' daily rule. Well, lastly, thirdly, the thing that motivated Herod that evidenced his apathy towards God, it wasn't only idolatry, it wasn't only being motivated by other people's opinions above God. The last thing that motivated Herod that evidenced his apathy towards God and John the baptizer was his pride. Notice that Mark speaks of an oath and a vow as he describes the story. Verse 23, Herod vowed to her. Verse 26, because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. We read that in English and we're like, that's so nice. He didn't want to break his word. That's not what it's talking about. It's that he was unwilling to say, I made a mistake. His pride took over. When we hear words like vows and oaths, we start to think of character, but this man's oaths and vows were only as good as his own egotistical pride and self-interest would let him be. Any and all of his actions were merely for show and were narcissistic self-protection. Brothers and sisters, I wonder how many self-professed Christians walk into churches every Sunday or tune into Christian radio stations and podcasts and say to ourselves, I can't wait to hear that righteous and holy preacher. When I listen to him or her, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm kind of confused and perplexed when I walk out, but I will sit and gladly hear them because it makes me feel like I'm doing the right thing and pleasing God. I'll just sit and be a buffet Christianity, choosing to listen to what I want to hear, eating the meat but spitting out the bones. And if I agree with the pastor, I'll go tell him, Pastor, great job today. I agreed with everything you said. 
I disagree with him, well, then I'm just not going to listen as much because at the end of the day, I'm the one who chooses what is right and what is wrong. You see, the reality is, is that is no different than the sin in the Garden of Eden. When God said don't, Eve said, I'm not so sure. I wonder, dear church, how many of us have become the self-professed ruler of our own life, much like King Herod. You see, it's very interesting that the first word used in verse 14 is the word king. You see, he was not a king at all. At most, Herod Antipas was a regional governor that was a puppet of Rome. But I want to suggest that the author intended this slip of the tongue for his title. You see, Herodias, we know from history, pressed Herod Antipas to petition Rome, to petition the emperor for this title of king. And because he did so, he was eventually dismissed and exiled. He never got the name king. Herod had become wise in his own eyes, king in his own realm. He had stepped into the original sin of our first mother and father, deciding the rules on his own, deciding good and evil on his own, rather than submitting to Christ and faithful obedience. How do, how do we know if we are walking in the image of Herod here rather than the image of Christ? It's a great question to ask ourselves. And the first thing is if we treat Jesus as if he is a great teacher or a conservative moral leader rather than our Savior and King. It's if we pick and choose what we want to follow and what we don't. Notice the wonderfully high opinions of the people who were spreading rumors about John. He is Elijah. He's a prophet. Same thing with Jesus. He's John the baptizer, raised from the dead. All very high respect, but not king, not Lord, not Savior, not Messiah, not God incarnate. Who is this Jesus? Well, John the Baptist, raised. Elijah, raised. I guess Elijah, come down from heaven. A prophet like one of the prophets of old. Nowhere in here do you see king, Lord, Savior, Messiah. God incarnate. The truth that this section foreshadows is that like John, Jesus was wrongly imprisoned and convicted. But unlike John the baptizer, Jesus was fully sinless and presented for us as a sacrificial lamb in your place and mine so that our sins could be forgiven. Our apathetic approval could be forgiven and changed. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, but when he presented the people with a chance to follow him, they cried out, crucify him, because what he preached was a message of losing oneself for the glory of God. You and I, dear friend, must repent, turning away from idol worship that we have previously pursued in lust of success and comfort, money, sexuality, and in reality, self. And instead, in repentance, we must turn our eyes towards Christ as King, Lord, Savior, so that he might rule over our lives. If you haven't done that today, our elders would love to pray with you in the back during the second set of worship. We'd love to talk with you about what it is to follow Jesus as a disciple. It requires the death of your life so that it might be resurrected in Christ. Jesus died so that he would resurrect in victory. He died for your sins and mine, and he calls us to walk in that same death and resurrection with him. For those of us who proclaim that we follow Christ already, if you find that you are consumeristic in your Christianity, taking whatever is comfortable and encouraging 
whatever benefits you, but you're leaving behind anything that asks sacrifice of you, anything that asks you to change your theology, anything that asks you to lay down your life for Christ and his people, then you might be an apathetic approver. If this is the case, we need to realize the grace of God that is presented to us today by his word to repent and turn to his gracious invitation of relationship. For you see, if we walk in apathetic approval towards Christ, towards his kingdom rule, his gospel, towards his people, we will quickly find that in the end, apathetic approval is the same as rejection. In the end, apathetic approval is the same as rejection. If we look ahead a little bit in Mark, we find this apathetic approval leads to an opinion of Herod that Jesus has in Mark 8.15. And it's this. He says, He cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Jesus here is warning his disciples of perverted truths. Here symbolized by this idea of leaven that had gone bad and infected the entire church or the entire bunch. Herod is lumped in with the Pharisees. Don't listen to this. And the reason that in the end apathetic approval is the same as rejection is because it has no strength contained within it. You see, when apathetic approval meets the pressures of the world, it will falter, and one will quickly see what one truly worships. We are built as relational creatures, dear friends. And so if your highest attachments, your strongest connections are to people that act contrary to Christ or in apathetic approval to Christ, what do you think will happen the moment they get frustrated with you pursuing Christ? If your highest attachments are to them rather than to Christ and those that pursue him passionately, what do you think will happen? Your heart will be turned. This is why Solomon was told by God, do not marry someone who is an apathetic approver or a non-believer. Why? Because the intimate tie of marriage will draw your heart away to follow their gods. And you know the story. Did that happen? It is a rare thing to find someone in a marriage where one person is a non-believer and the other is a passionate believer because it is hard. It takes constant death. And if you are in that case, if you're a person in that case and you're here today, I want you to know that Jesus is with you in that fight. You're single-handedly trying to keep your vow to the person that you promised to the Lord you would vow to and follow and walk with, and at the same time, walk in faithfulness to God. That is a tough place. But the reality is our hearts cannot serve two masters. And so Jesus is there with you as you passionately pursue Jesus. If you're a person who finds that this is happening in your life, that the pressures of the world are meeting your apathetic approval and the gospel just isn't strong enough to keep you, then I might suggest to you that you don't know the gospel. Because the gospel is that God loved you so much that he laid down his life for you. He resurrected in full victory, and he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. That is a powerful truth. And it's one that should keep us strong in the midst of those times where the pressures of the world meet our apathetic approval. Instead, we should repent and passionately pursue Jesus as the one and only recipient of our worship. Well, a high opinion of Jesus and his gospel, but without the authority in your life, 
you may just simply mask the fact that you're truly rejecting him. Now, this is a wonderful quote from J.R. Edwards in his commentary entitled The Gospel According to Mark. He says, Considering Jesus to be Elijah or one of the prophets, or as we hear today, to be the greatest person ever to have lived or the finest moral example of humanity does not necessarily bring one a step closer to faith. Indeed, he says, it may be a graver danger to faith, for it is easier to be content with a noble opinion that is wrong than with a base opinion that is wrong. When push came to shove, all the other motivations and worship of Herod's life led to him killing this man whom he highly revered. I've lived as a pastor now long enough where I've seen this, where people who swore, I will never leave Christ, I will never leave this church, when the right button was pressed in their life, man, it is a quick turnaround. That's the reality of humanity. And so if our passion isn't for Christ and his people, first and foremost, we will turn when those pressures hit. Mark places it here in part to foreshadow the actions of Pontius Pilate. And look with me at Mark 6, uh, 15. You can just turn a little bit to the right in your Bible. Mark 15, verses 6 through 15. Mark 15, verses 6 through 15. Now at the feast, he, Pontius Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man, man called Barabbas. In the Hebrew, this means son of the father. So we're going to be choosing between one son of the father, a human man, and one son of the father, a man that is both fully human and fully God, who is also the son of the true father. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? He's speaking of Jesus. For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. He even saw with his own eyes that Jesus was wrongly accused. Notice that. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him, have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Remember that the story in Mark 6 is sandwiched between two sections about the apostles. And look back at Mark 6.30, and you'll see that what happens is the apostles come back and they say, Jesus, we've done what you've asked. He told, they told him all that they had done and taught. They'd acted within his authority. It's as if the author was still talking about the second response, but included the third response as a warning within the second. Uh, look with me um, here at Mark 8.34, just a little bit to the right of Mark 6. Mark 8.34. And notice what Jesus says on this topic of apathetic following or apathetic discipleship. Mark 8.34 Skip it ahead a bit, he says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him apathetically approve and not have to do anything, because I did everything. Is that what it says? Then why on earth do we constantly hear in the Christian church, Jesus did it all? Well, Hans, he did for salvation. Correct. He did for justification. He did so that you could be in relationship with God. 
the relationship doesn't end there. If you try to earn salvation and forgiveness through works of your own, you will not earn them. But from the point of justification, sanctification begins, being called out to be called apart and set apart. And so Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself or herself and take up his or her cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The reality of following Jesus is that there is no such thing as a half-hearted disciple of Jesus. In the end, apathetic approval of Jesus is the same as rejection of Jesus. It just takes a bit longer to kick in. The message that is truly pressed in this story is that not only is John's death a foreshadow of Jesus' death, he is a foreshadow of the death of every person who claims to be a disciple. If I were preaching in Burkina Faso today, this would ring with amazing sincerity. Are you ready to die for the gospel? In the American view of Christianity, we've completely lost that mentality. Getting us to barely repent is hard enough. Are you ready to die? Are you ready to lay down everything that is in your life for the glory of Christ, including your ego, your pride, your opinions, your relationships, everything? The saying from Dietrich Bonhoeffer that I love to quote to you guys often is so true. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So what does it mean for us to die? I want us to ponder a few questions as we close this morning. First, is there any part of my walk as a disciple that can be classified as a consumer Christian or consumer Christianity? In other words, approval of Christ and his commands as long as it requires nothing of me. Are you a person that hops around to churches just as it fits you and your schedule and you like this pastor and you like that pastor and you like their worship? You're a consumer Christian. If you're a person that's not plugged in at a local church, I, I press you today, plug in at a local church. Stop hopping around. Are you a person that you'll take this podcast or that Christian t-shirt or this record album, while I'm old, this uh, whatever it is, I was going to say CD, but that's even old too. I'm going to take this one song, but I don't like this song, right? You're a consumer Christian. I'm going to stay at a church as long as I feel loved, as long as they do what I need, as long as service isn't too hard or asks too much of me, you're a consumer Christian. And this week, perhaps, it is time to step fully into, into obedience in something Christ is calling for you to sacrifice. Maybe it's as simple as stepping into service of your brothers and sisters in this church. Hans, that's self-serving. Yes, it is. But that's part of losing your life is to serve. Maybe it's stepping into membership when you've pressed hard to maintain your independence. Maybe it's laying down your attempts to change your spouse and instead, focus on working on yourself. That's a great way to die. Die in your marriage. Lay down your attempts to change your spouse. And instead, focus on you and how you can become a better spouse. Maybe it's laying down a sinful habit that you look to as support because your life is stressful and you just need this one thing, this one little thing. Maybe it's laying that down and confessing it to your brothers and sisters to get help. What do you need to lay down 
Is there any part of your walk as a disciple that can be classified as consumer Christianity, and what do you need to lay down to get rid of that? Secondly, I want you to ask the question, are there opinions of people in your life that rank higher than the approval of Christ? Are there opinions of people that rank higher than the approval of Christ? I wish you guys could see in my head at the end of a Sunday. Oh man, you would see what a weak, fallible pastor I am. I wonder what they think. I wonder what they think. I wonder what that person thinks. I wonder what that person thinks. I wonder what he thinks over there. I wonder what he thinks over there. I wonder what she thinks. Oh, did I do a good job? And part of preaching is learning the idea that if it's in the text, it's to be preached, whether the people like it or lump it. And the reality is, is that that's how we have to walk in every moment of every day. I still really want you guys to like me, by the way. (laughs) But the reality is, is that we need to be looking towards Christ for that. There was a sermon recently where I got up here and preached, and it was pretty heavy. And I want you to know on those sermons, I get off the stage and I kind of tuck my tail between my legs and go to the back and start praying, Lord, please, please don't let them kick me out of this church. (laughs) And I was looking over and I saw somebody who for some reason I felt like I really needed their approval and I was standing there thinking, Lord, what is it? Why do I feel like I need to go to this person and get their approval? And it was because I needed somebody to tell me I was okay for having preached a hard word. And in that moment, I confessed that need to the Lord and I said, Lord, please help me to let your word for me be okay. Are we people that look to others' opinions as the one who gives us identity, as the one who gives us worth? If so, what is it about their opinion that's giving you identity and worth that you need instead to gain from Christ and his people? And maybe it's even with his people. Maybe you need to lay lay that down so that you can focus on Christ's word of identity for you. So are there opinions of people that rank higher than the approval of Christ? Third, is there any part of your life, any actions or relationships that are currently making you exceedingly sorry? You know if there are. The Holy Spirit is already telling you. Is there any part of your life, any actions or relationships that are currently making you exceedingly sorry? And the reason is, is because it's obvious in conflict with Christ's lordship in your life, and you know it. And so this week, step into repentance by seeking help from your brothers and sisters. These questions will all be sent to the discipleship group leaders. In fact, they actually are. So discipleship group leaders, you're welcome. One Sunday, I actually was on top of it. And they're there for you to discuss in your discipleship groups. And so in those groups, if you're part of those groups, talk about what it is that you need to lay down. For those who aren't in those groups, talk to good friends here in the church and figure out what it is that you need to step into in repentance this week by seeking help from your brothers and sisters to lay something down. Brothers and sisters, it's time to die to our pride, to our lusts, to our desire of approval of others above Christ. It's time to kill any apathetic approval that exists in our lives. Until we do that, we can't fully be commissioned in the way that we want to be it will hold us back. We want to be commissioned as those who can go and evangelize. And so today, let's take these steps as we go to the table of communion. Rather than apathetic approvers, let us be a church full of people that are so thankful for God's gracious forgiveness and invitation into his kingdom that we are submitted to Christ and his rule and commissioned for his evangelistic purposes.